Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. You know, a couple of years ago, we had some friends from the East Coast, where I'm from, uh, they were going to come visit us out here in California. And so uh, our, our friend bought her plane tickets, and it wasn't the best itinerary. It had a long layover, and it had her arriving at the Ontario airport uh, after midnight. And so when she arrived at her layover, she went to go visit with a ticket agent to see if there's anything earlier that can get her to California quickly. And they found uh, a flight that actually got there at 10 p.m. So she quickly booked it and uh, called up my wife, and they agreed that they would meet at baggage claim at the Ontario airport at 10 p.m. So 10 o'clock rolls around, my wife drives over to the airport, gets the baggage claim, and our friend is nowhere to be found. She pulls out her phone, says, hey, uh, I'm here at baggage claim, where are you? And our friend goes, I'm at baggage claim too, where are you? And they're communicating back and forth and they can't seem to find each other, and so something doesn't seem right. So my wife just kind of asks, are you sure you're at the right airport? She laughs, of course I am. You know, hang on, let me just double check with one of the workers. And so my wife can hear this conversation playing out coming through the phone. She goes up to one of the workers, uh, am I at the Ontario airport? And the guy responds, Ontario? No, you're at the Oakland airport. Oops. <laughs> Listen, our friend had the right intention, but ended up at the wrong destination. She started off heading to the right place, but through a variety of circumstances, found herself very far from the right place. And I wonder how many of you are the same way when it comes to God. I wonder how many of us had all the right intentions. We started off heading in the right way, but through a variety of circumstances, somehow we got off course and we looked up and realized, I am far from the place that I want to be. If that's you, here's the question. How do you get back on track? That's what I want to dig into this morning as we continue with part two of our message series about the last week of Jesus before the cross and before the tomb. And last week, we looked at Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey as people waved palm branches and welcomed him as king. It's the day we typically refer to as Palm Sunday. Well, today, we are going to look at something very dramatic Jesus did to open up people's eyes. And so we are going to be in the New Testament Gospels of Mark and Matthew. And so if you have a Bible, make your way over to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to see how Jesus spent his Monday. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. This is what it says. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. This is the first historical record of someone being hangry. Jesus went looking for food, and it wasn't there, and so he cursed this tree. You know, what's this all about? It's a very fascinating story. We'll dig into that a little, a little more carefully in just a minute. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all people, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is one of the most misunderstood scriptures about the life of Jesus that we have. Because it appears that Jesus comes unglued and he, he gets upset, loses it, and goes violent on everyone. Did it just... Was he just having a bad day? You know, it started with the figs and it all just went downhill from there. <laughs> that might be how you and I react. But there's no indication from the scripture here that Jesus came unglued or that he was violent. He was in control the entire way, but he was angry. And what was he angry about? He was angry about two things, the what and the where. What was happening and where it was happening. Let's start with the what. It was Passover festival. And that meant that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people had descended on the city of Jerusalem to, to commemorate Passover. This was a day that God instituted to help the Jewish people remember when he saved them out of Egyptian slavery by unleashing a series of plagues upon Pharaoh, culminating with an angel of death passing over the homes whose doorposts were marked by the blood of the lamb, but bringing judgment upon those whose houses weren't marked. And so this festival was like a week-long celebration, and it came with its uh, certain requirements one had to fulfill. One of those requirements was that all people were to, were to make a small offering of half a shekel in the temple treasury. Here's the problem. Most people were coming from other areas that used Roman currency, which had the face of Caesar on the coin, kind of like the coins that we have. Well, in the temple grounds, graven images were totally forbidden, which meant they had to exchange their Roman coins for local ones so they could make an acceptable offering. Well, the money changers knew this, and so they hiked their rates up way high and made massive profits off of their own people. Another requirement they were to observe was they were to bring animal sacrifices uh, to the priests at the temple. And again, the, the merchants saw an opportunity here, so they sold animals that people can purchase so that they didn't have to bring their own, and they charged people something like 20 times higher than what they would normally sell these animals for. And you thought popcorn at the movie theater was expensive. <laughs> How many of you have ever gone to the movies, bought popcorn, you thought, you know, at Costco, I could get a tub of butter, a gallon of salt, and a giant box of microwave popcorn for less than this little bucket they just handed me. So you think, I'll just bring my own popcorn. If you try that, they'll stop you and say, oh, no, no, you can't bring that in here. You need to buy our popcorn. And that goes for all the other movie snacks, which is why we all figured out how to sneak it in. And I, and I know you do it. I've seen you at the movies. Coming in with an oversized winter coat in the middle of the summer. I know what's going on here. And so that's what the people they thought to do. We'll just bring our own animals so that we could sidestep this, this extortion. But here is the problem there. Even if people brought an acceptable sacrifice, an animal without defect or blemish, they had to bring it to the priest for inspection. And the priest had to make sure the animal was up to standard. And even if it was, the priest was in on the scam too. And he'd find something wrong with it. Uh, I don't know, I don't like how his back heel looks. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I think I see a spot here. Sorry, you're going to have to buy one of ours. 
you're going to have to go to the merchants. And so they'd get a little kickback for that referral, which meant the people had to go exchange more money, which meant the money changers got rich, the merchants got rich, the priests got rich, all off of their own people who were just coming to worship and celebrate Passover. And who felt the biggest brunt of the scam? Poor people. And Jesus was furious, especially considering the where. This was happening at the temple. And it's hard for us to really understand just how important the temple was to Jewish religious life. The temple represented the intersection of God and man. It was, it was a representation of God dwelling amongst his people. Because God's desire has always been to dwell among his people. It's been that way since the very beginning. Let's look at the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So first he made Adam, then he made Eve, and he put them in this garden, and that's the place where God dwelled with mankind. They'd walk together. They'd talk together. But all of that was lost when Adam and Eve disobeyed and sin entered into the picture. Look at Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden." So the place where they could once dwell with God was now lost. Because of their disobedience, sinful humanity was no longer allowed to dwell with a sinless God. But God would reestablish a way to dwell among his people. Fast forward a few thousand years to the days of Moses. Right after the Red Sea parted and they walked through, God gave this command in Exodus 25, verse 8. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So what God did was he gave them instructions on how to create essentially a portable tent that represented God's presence among the people. It was a miniature version of the Garden of Eden. The difference now, however, was that the people didn't have unfettered access to God. They couldn't do that because of the sin in their life. So God established a sacrificial system. Now, a person could transfer their sins to a sacrificial lamb without blemish or defect who could die as a substitute for them. And the people would do this over and over again to atone for their sins until someday God would send a perfect sacrificial lamb who could atone for the sins of the world once and for all. So now God, through the tabernacle, could dwell with mankind. And that's how it was for the, for the Jewish people, for the Israelites, for, for many, many years. And then finally, they, they got their own land, they established their own kingdom, and it was Solomon who decided, let's not do a portable tent anymore, let's make a permanent dwelling for God. And so he built this massive temple that was big and ornate and beautiful, and God dwelled amongst the people again, but it came with a condition. God told him, as long as you keep me, first and foremost, everything will be fine. But listen to what he said if they didn't. This is 2 Chronicles 7. 
He said, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. And what do you think the Israelites did? They turned their back on God. They worshiped other false idols, and this exact thing happened. In 586 BC, the Babylonians came in, they conquered Jerusalem, they displaced the people, and they destroyed the temple. Now the representation was God no longer dwelt with his people, just like he said it would happen. And so for years and years, the Israelites lived without a a, a city, without a temple, but over the years, eventually, Jerusalem was rebuilt and a temple was reestablished, but it wasn't until the year 39 BC that King Herod came and expanded on this temple, and he restored it to its beauty and splendor and glory. It was the second temple, Herod's temple, that was the one that was active in the days of Jesus. And yet here Jesus shows up in the temple courts and sees how people in the name of God and religion are exploiting poor people. They've turned their backs on God. They're worshiping the idol of money. Jesus saw it as clear as day, which is why he said this in Matthew chapter 24. He said, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus prophesied that the second temple would also be destroyed. And less than 40 years later, the Romans came in and did that very thing. They destroyed the second temple, and it hasn't been rebuilt since. Now the only thing that remains on Temple Mount is a shrine of Islam called the Dome of the Rock. I was there not long ago, and I took this picture right here. There is no shred of anything biblical up there. While you're on the Temple Mount, you can't wear a cross, you can't hold a Bible, you can't have anything religious on your shirts. The Palestinian authorities will make sure of that. Any archaeological evidence that had biblical significance was either destroyed or thrown in the trash. The only thing that remains of Herod's temple is a western wall. I took some video of it here last time I was there. And uh, this, this western wall is where Jews go to pray because this is the closest that they could get to the temple. Even today, the temple is still central in Jewish life. And they're, they're awaiting the opportunity to rebuild a third temple. The Apostle Paul tells us it's going to happen in the days of the Antichrist. And so picture Jesus at this temple on Passover And he's seeing people who are in the shadow of this building that represents God dwelling with his people, and they still got off track. But here's the irony. Jesus was there too, the perfect temple. God in the flesh dwelling with people, and they missed him too. Friends, if they could get off track, you and I can get off track too. And that's why Jesus came and cleaned house, literally, because he wanted to get all of the stuff out of the way that's preventing us from seeing who he really is. The the one and only hope 
It's not a building. It's not a religion. It's Jesus himself. And so he overturned tables to show us who he really is. And I see from this passage of scripture three different aspects of, of who Jesus is that he wanted us to see. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down. Here's the first one. Jesus wants us to see that he is the God of transformation, not the God of obligation. What is obligation? It's something you have to do, which is how many people view God. Hey, what are the rules I need to follow? What are the hoops I need to jump through to, to, to get what I need, to get God on my side? That's what many of the Jews at that time believed. They're just mindlessly going through these rituals. But here's the problem with, with a rules-based religion. It doesn't lead to transformation, which is why Jesus came and cursed the tree. Let's go back and look at Matthew, Matthew's uh, account of this same story in Matthew 21, verse 18. He says, Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again, and immediately the tree withered. How many of you have ever been hungry, and you walked into your cabinet, and you found a box of your favorite snacks, and you grabbed the box only to discover that it was empty? Somebody in your house ate the last one and stuck an empty box back up in the cabinet. What a letdown. That's how Jesus felt. He, he saw the fig tree from a distance and it had leaves on it, which meant that it had a strong likelihood there'd be figs there too. But when he got up close, all leaves and no fruit. So he cursed it and said, may you never grow fruit again. This was a living metaphor of the kind of religion he saw many practice in Israel. You see, from afar, it looked religious. Hey, we're getting ready for this festival. It had the leaves, but once you got up close, you realized it wasn't producing any fruit. And that's what happens when you worship a God of obligation, a God where you have to do all of these certain rules to get him on your good side. The problem with a rules-based faith is that there's too many, too many loopholes in life. You can't make a rule for everyone. Let me give you an example. When I was in Israel, I took a picture of this at our hotel. It was an elevator, and it says on it, Shabbat elevator. Shabbat means Sabbath. And so many Jews practice on the Sabbath that you can't work in any way. And so apparently it's work if you open an elevator door and press the button. And so the Shabbat elevator automatically goes to every floor and the doors automatically open so that you can get in and go up to your room. But here's the funny part to me. You still need to go to your hotel door, pull out your key, and open the hotel door. So apparently it's work to open an elevator door, but it's not work to open your hotel door. Do you see the, how these things can, can be so inconsistent? But before we point a finger at other religions, let's hold up a mirror to ourselves. All of us, even those of you who practice a Christian faith, can devolve into worshiping a God of, of obligation, one where you're just sort of doing things mindlessly without thinking about transformation. For example, we have challenged our church to participate in a fast, the 40 days leading up to Easter, to, to pray for somebody who does not yet know Christ and to, and to fast, to abstain from something to do so. Well, well right away, this can become an obligation. For example, you might say, I'm, I'm fasting from desserts. 
Then your coworker sees you munching on a donut in the afternoon and goes, uh, hello, I thought you were fasting from desserts. And you respond, this is a snack, not dessert. Okay? <laughs> Snacks come after a meal. Duh. You know, or how many of you might say, I- I'm fasting from television. So you watch all your favorite shows on your phone. <laughs> I'm not watching the television, I'm watching my phone. It's the size of the screen that obviously matters to God, right? Do you, do you guys see? Yeah. Do you see how, how this idea of a works-based faith, it doesn't actually produce cha- change? What's the point of fasting? It's to experience God in new ways. It's to pray for those who don't yet know Christ. It's to set you up for the potential of God doing a transforming work in your life. Jesus isn't interested in you and I looking the part. He wants us living the part. And so if you want to experience some transformation, it doesn't come from doing more. It comes from dying more. Dying to our own desires. Saying, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I bring nothing to you. I'm, 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 I'm poor and, and I just need you to, to, to do what you want in my life. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 12. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, death to self, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I ask you this. Are you going through the motions I go to church to appease the wife or, you know, because my parents make me. You know, I pray to God. I want him to heal my marriage. I'm not asking him to root out anything that I might be contributing to in this marriage. I just want him to fix it. I just, what, what do I need to do? Do I need to give money somewhere? Do I need to get in the baptism water? What, what, what do I need to do, God? That doesn't produce change. Jesus isn't interested in a faith that doesn't bear fruit. And so if you want to see some transformation in your life, you've got to come to him open-handed and say, I can't produce this on my own. I need you to do a work in me, Jesus. You know what's fascinating is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried on their own to cover their nakedness. Man-made, man-centered religion. But it was God who covered them ultimately. Do you remember what they reached for to cover their nakedness? Fig leaves. The first Adam went looking for fig leaves The second Adam went looking for figs. He wants to do a transformative work in our lives. Let's not get caught up worshiping a God of obligation. That's the first thing that Jesus wanted us to see when he cleansed the temple. He wants us to see him as a a God of transformation, not obligation. Here's the second one. Jesus wants us to see that he is the God who welcomes, not the God who burdens. Let's go back to that, that temple courtyard Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. It said, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Jesus was furious at the fact that people were, were locking out the rich folk so that they could, or they're the, locking out the poor folk so they can make themselves more rich. And so Jesus is opposed to any religion that locks people away from experiencing Christ. And so he cleansed out the temple. And what happened as soon as he was done? Verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. 
as soon as he cleared out the money changers and the merchants, the poor lined up and standing at the front of the line were the blind and the lame. They couldn't come there before. Where would they stand? Where would they lay? Where would they pray? There's too much activity. All of the space was taken up with people. There's animal dung everywhere for crying out loud. And Jesus cleared all of those people away, and it was the blind and the lame that showed up because Jesus wants to welcome everyone to have a life-changing encounter with him. And if you're standing in the way that, he might clear you out of the way too. Jesus wants all of us to welcome anybody unto him. Because Jesus is for everyone, not just the wealthy, not just the healthy, not just a certain ethnicity, but everyone. Now, it is, there's a big difference between welcoming someone and affirming someone. You get that, right? See, in, in, our, in our culture, affirming means that you have to put a stamp of approval upon every single lifestyle and life choice. And one of the big buzzwords in our culture today is inclusive. We have to be inclusive. We have to make sure that every single uh, person is completely and totally affirmed because after all, that's how Jesus was, right? Wrong. You know, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus actually taught that not everybody gets to heaven, only those who place their faith in Jesus. That's incredibly exclusive. So it is possible to be welcoming to someone without being affirming. How do I know that? That's what Jesus did with the money changers and the, and the merchants. It doesn't seem very welcoming that he chased them out. But listen, if any of them would have come back, he would have welcomed them back. How do we know this? Because Jesus himself says it. Listen to his own words in, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus wants to welcome everyone. Hollow religion, on the other hand, burdens people down. It teaches you that you have to follow all of the rules to earn God's favor. And if you're not careful, you could lose God's favor. And you got to clean up before you ever come into his presence. That's a burden. That's a barrier. And that's what Jesus cleared out. And he expects his people to do the same. He wants everyone to be able to come to Jesus and have a life-changing encounter. So we got to welcome people to Jesus. Yeah, but what if, what if they're homeless? You welcome them in. What if they disobey their parents? You welcome them in. What if they aren't dressed for church? You welcome them in. What if they're addicted to drugs? You welcome them in. What if they identify as a different gender? You welcome them in. Why? Because if Jesus is the only one who could transform hearts, don't we want everybody to have that kind of access? Don't we want the worst kinds of people to come to Jesus? I do because I'm one of them. And it is possible to welcome without affirming. Jesus himself did it. And that's the kind of God he is. And here's what's interesting. Not only did he welcome the blind and the, blind and the lame, but look, verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Do you know that Jesus only performed two sets of miracles in the walls of Jerusalem? One was he healed a lame man at the pool of Bethesda, 
And the second was this, when he healed the blind and the lame. What's interesting is thousands of years earlier, David was trying to conquer Israel. And at the time, it was occupied by a group of people called the Jebusites. And they were so confident in the fact that, that Jerusalem could not be penetrated, that they bragged about it. In fact, it's said that they lined the walls with the blind and the lame. It was the ultimate mockery to anybody who would try to attack. There's no way you're getting in here. Even the blind and the lame will stop you. Well, David figured it out, and he attacked the city, and he killed his enemies, including the blind and the lame. A few thousand years later, here's Jesus, the son of David. David killed the blind and the lame. Jesus healed the blind and the lame. In a beautiful, full-circle moment, Jesus was reminding all of us that he is the only perfect king, and he wants to do a life-changing work in everyone's life, if only they could come to him. Jesus wants us to see that he is the God of transformation, not the God of obligation, the God who welcomes, not the God who burdens. Here's the third one. The God who stars, not supports. What do I mean by this? How many of you saw the movie starring Brian Ferguson? Come on, nobody saw the Brian Ferguson movie? Guys, it was one of the highest grossing movies of the year. It's nominated for an Academy Award. No one saw the Brian Ferguson movie? Okay, you don't know who Brian Ferguson is? He was the star of one of the biggest movies. Here, I got a picture of him right here. Top Gun Maverick. He's the guy on the right. Okay, well, he didn't have any lines in the movie. He didn't even have a name. He was just simply known as Fighter Pilot at the Bar. But he was the star of the movie, right? Wrong. We all know who the star was. It was Tom Cruise. He's one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And it's ridiculous for me to suggest that an extra is the star. But yet, that's how many of us feel about God when it comes to our own lives. I'm the star of the show. God, you're the supporting cast. I call the shots. You make it happen. Let's go back to this whole situation with the fig tree. Back in Mark 11, verse 20. It says, In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. There is a, a movement within Christianity that's been referred to as name it and claim it. And the idea is that when you become a Christian, it's almost like you assume some godlike powers where you could speak things into existence and then through your faith, you can make them happen. So if you want to be wealthy, you got to speak it into existence and then your faith will make it happen. If you want to be healthy or, or whatever, just, just name it and claim it. There, there's actually a secular version of this as well. It's called manifesting. But instead of invoking the power of God, you invoke the power of universe. Instead of exercising faith, you exercise belief. I'm going to speak something into the universe, and I'm going to believe that it happens. That's all true if you're the star of the show. And it seems like the scripture is supporting that. I mean, I mean, didn't Jesus say, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours? Was Jesus teaching that you could name and claim and manifest and whatever? That's actually not what Jesus was teaching. Because remember, he just withered a fig tree to be a metaphor 
of how he feels about me-centered religion, where I'm at the center. And he didn't want his disciples to fall into that same trap. He wanted to make sure they understood where the power of God is, is at work. And so he said in verse 23, Therefore I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that, that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. He quoted a, a famous saying at that time, go throw yourself into the sea. This was something that people said of Jewish rabbis, that those who, had, who, who were schooled in Bible knowledge and the scripture knowledge they had available to them, that they could overcome any obstacle thrown their way. They could throw any obstacle into the sea. Me-centered religion. Then Jesus took his disciples and he pointed toward the Mount of Olives and said, see that mountain? It's standing as an obstacle in our way. So how are you going to move it? Through your own strength? Through your own effort? No, your faith is in God to remove obstacles. Here's one of the problems that we have when we put ourselves at the center of the show is that we believe it's our faith that unlocks the blessings of heaven as if God is some sort of cosmic vending machine. The problem with this is that you put on your own shoulders a massive burden that anything bad that happens in your life could have been prevented if you had more faith. So if you have a relative who's dying of cancer and you pray for their healing and it doesn't happen, it was your fault because you didn't have enough faith. And any kind of, of loss in life, whether it's a loss of a dream, a loss of a job, a loss of a life, it could have all been prevented if you just had enough faith, if you just spoke enough into the universe and, and manifested it. That's only true if you worship a God who's the supporting cast. But what Jesus wanted us to see is that your faith should not be in God's answer. It should be in God's character that he's going to remove the obstacle in your life, the problem is we don't always know what that obstacle is. Let me give you an example from my life. For many years, my wife and I, we prayed that we could start a family. And we prayed and we had faith and we kept believing in Jesus' name, and it didn't happen. The doctors told us we were infertile. And so we kept praying and it wasn't happening. Did we not have enough faith? Was I not saying the prayer the right way? Did I not get the, the, the cadence right? What, what was the problem? Well, over the course of, of expressing my prayers and expressing my faith to God, for both my wife and I, he began to birth something new in our hearts. He birthed in our hearts a desire to adopt. And through a variety of, of crazy stories and circumstances, God made it so that our family has been built upon adoption. And it's only from my perspective now, looking back, and realize God was answering my prayer the whole time. He removed the obstacle. We wanted to be parents. He just did it in a way that I never expected. And the reality is that God is answering your prayers too. It's just that sometimes we don't even know what the obstacle is. And if God doesn't answer it the exact way that you want, is he still good? Do you still have faith in his character? So friends, listen, pray for whatever you want. Pray for a spouse. Pray for healing. Pray for a job. But do you still have faith if God answers in a way that you didn't expect? And sometimes it takes years to understand that. Sometimes uh, we're just going to have to live in the mystery, but that's where faith comes from. 
It comes in believing that God is still good. We just sang about it, that he's been faithful, even if it doesn't pan out the exact way that I thought. And friends, here's the other thing. If you've given your life to Jesus, he's already removed the greatest obstacle you'll ever face, and that is your sin counted against you. Friends, death is not the biggest obstacle. It's what happens after we die. And if you've given your life to Jesus, he's already taken care of that. You can receive that and believe that. But there's a lot of us who don't have that assurance. There's a lot of us who are still working a me-centered religion. We're, we're, we're trying to jump through hoops and we're trying to follow all the rules. And we're just like that tree. We got all the leaves, but inside we're as empty as they come. Jesus didn't need to kill that tree because it was already dead. And maybe there's someone in here today who's saying, today's the day I'm going to stop trying to do it all myself. And today's the day that I'm going to believe in faith that Jesus is the only one who could save me. He's the only one who could transform me. He's the only one who could remove the obstacles in my life. So Jesus, today, I'm going to admit my sins to you. I'm going to believe you in faith, and I'm going to commit to following you. If you've never prayed a prayer like that, I want to help you do that today. I'll lead you in a prayer in just a moment. You could repeat after me in the silence of your heart. Friends, listen, these are just words if you don't really believe them and make them your own. And so if you've never invited Christ into your life as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to help you do that right now. I want to ask everybody to close your eyes, bow your heads, consider your own life, And then repeat these words after me. Jesus, today I invite you in. You send those prayers right straight up to heaven. Jesus, today I invite you in. I admit that I cannot save myself. My sins have prevented me from being close to you. And so I confess my sins before you. And I believe in faith that you died in my place. I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you cleanse me. And I ask that you transform me so I could leave my old life behind and follow after you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. If you prayed this prayer for the first time, I want to challenge you to let us know about it. On the program, when you came in, is a perforated card, and it has a box on here that says, I said yes. You could fill that out. Check that box if you pray to receive Christ. You could just tear it off, and in just a moment, the bags are going to come around for today's offering. You could just drop that right in, and we'll follow up with you to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. Those of you watching online, there's links that you could follow. Maybe you've prayed to receive Jesus already, but you're not going anywhere. You want to take your next steps. Here's how. Text NEXT to 909-281-7797. One of our staff people will exchange some messages with you to help you get connected. Maybe you want to join a small group. You want to get more involved in serving. Maybe you need somebody to talk to. You need some assistance. Text NEXT to 909-281-7797, or you can stop by our Next Step table in the lobby. Next week, we're going to look at how Jesus spent his Tuesday and Wednesday. And he talked all about the end times. It's going to be very interesting. Be thinking of who you can invite with you to come to sunrise and hear this message about Jesus. 
Friends, Jesus cleared out that temple so that we could see him as the true God, the one and only. And Jesus wants us to see that he is a God of transformation, not of obligation. He doesn't want us going through the motions. He wants to see a a faith in us that produces fruit. It only happens when we surrender to him and die to ourselves. Jesus is a God who welcomes, not a God who burdens. And all of us are to clear things out of the way so that people can experience Jesus. Let's not put man-made barriers in the way. And Jesus is a God who stars, not a God who supports. You and I are not the star of the movie. God knows us better than we know us, and he doesn't need our help telling him how to be God. And friends, maybe today, Jesus needs to overturn some tables in our hearts and cleanse everything out that's gotten us off course so that by trusting in him, we can all get back on track. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for not just being a God who just pats us on the shoulder and said, everything's going to be fine, but instead you're willing to, to do the hard things to overturn the tables, to chase out the the people and things in our lives that have stood between you and us. And Lord, I pray that we would in humility bow before you today. And for anyone who's wandered, for anyone who's gotten off course, that today would be the day they come back to you. Lord, I pray for anybody in here who's been who's been blindly just trying to <clears throat> please you with their good works and their good merits apart from a relationship with Jesus, I pray that today would be the day they surrender to you too. And Lord, I pray that you would change their hearts in Jesus' name. As we prepare to take these offerings, I ask that you, you multiply these financial gifts. I pray that you would give us cheerful and generous hearts as we give them, knowing that this is yours to begin with. We're only managing it, so may we May we entrust back to you what's already yours, Lord, and use it to impact lives here and around our state and around our world. Lord God, we thank you. We need you. It's so easy to get off track. And so I pray that today we would focus only on you as our only hope. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. And if you believe it in your heart, then somebody say amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I want to encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word next to the number 909-281-7797. That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.